Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Therese Gagnon, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Copenhagen and the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I will be your host today. Joining me today is Chazé Arwin. Chazé Arwin is a project coordinator at the International Republican Institute. He is an expert in politics, international relations, and human rights with a focus on Myanmar. He holds a master's in international relations from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, where he was an Open Society Fellow. He has previously worked at organizations including Voice of America and Amnesty International. He is the author of the book chapter, Securitization of Rohingya in Myanmar, from the book, Myanmar Transformed, People, Places, and Politics. This is part one of a two-part series discussing the securitization of Rohingya in Myanmar with Chaze Arwen. And he will be speaking with us today, particularly about the US government's long-awaited determination of genocide against the Rohingya in Myanmar, which was delivered in March, 2022. So in this conversation, we will hear from Zayar about the roots of the Rohingya genocide which happened in 2017 in relation to the long history of securitization of Rohingya in Myanmar. And we will also discuss the possible implications of the US government's determination of genocide for post-coup Myanmar, as well as current issues and challenges facing Rohingya communities inside and outside of Myanmar. Welcome to the podcast, Zayar. Thank you very much. It's really honor to contribute to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Zayar. So to go ahead and jump right in, and perhaps to provide a little context for our listeners, in March of this year, 2022, the U.S. government announced its determination that genocide had been committed by the Myanmar military against Rohingya people in Myanmar's Rakhine state in 2017. This was a decision that had been long awaited by many, and it has fueled some hope that the U.S. government may now take a more decisive step in bringing the perpetrators of this atrocity to justice the same military that has now seized power through the February 1st, 2021 coup in Myanmar. So while most of our listeners will probably be aware of the atrocities that occurred against Rohingya communities in 2017, and also possibly of the atrocities that occurred before that in 2013, the decades-long history of the systemic securitization of Rohingya communities is less widely understood. So Zayar, could you briefly describe for us that history and how it led up to the genocide that occurred in 2017? Yeah, first of all, this is really a good initiative that the United States Department Declaration of the Genocide Against the Rohingya Community in Burma. So when we see the Rohingya issue, I would say it has two main aspects from the Rohingya issue. First is the citizenship issue like the Myanmar current citizenship law, the 1982 citizenship law excluded the Rohingya from the national ethnicity that makes them the defaulto statelessness. So for a long time. And another issue is the identity issue, like Obama failed to create a national identity that embraced all the ethnicities residing in the Obama territory since the Burmese Burma independence in 1948. So this is the second issue. So from the citizenship perspective, 
Burma failed to embrace diverse community living in today's Burma territory since the 1948. The, since the independence in 1948, the Burma successive leaders, predominantly Burma ethnicity and Buddhist follower, they envisioned the country's identity as a Buddhist country, as a sense of the continuity from pre-colonial Burma. You know, based on this perception, based on this approach, they have been promoting Buddhism as a glue, cohesive among the majority population. Because the country's demography shows in the census, approximately 89% of the country's population follow Buddhism. This data uh, encouraged the power-seeking politician Unfortunately, the country has experienced a long-lasting military dictatorship since 1962. So the military dictator, in order to hold the power for a long time and to implement their desired policy, the military dictator create a national enemy that easily distract the public attention from their failure to this national enemy. So with that said, the military, like the successive dictator create the existential threat to the nation, the national security. In this way, the Rohingya community and Rohingya identity became existential threat to the country's sovereignty, territorial security, national identity, and societal security, including the economic security. So this is not the one year, two year, or the short term. This is for a long time, like since the 1962. So it's almost like five decades long. Another point is like from the identity perspective, the political leaders view the Rohingya identity as an existential threat to the Burma and Buddhist identity. So these Rohingya community concentrated in northern Rakhine state have always been secessionists who have tried to separate Rakhine state from Burma and NS to Bangladesh or establish a Islamic state. They see this way by linking the Rohingya community throughout the contemporary history to the past Mujahideen rebellion and other Islamic, how can I say, the terrorist attack in other countries, they link with the Rohingya issue, with this international issue, then they create the Rohingya community. Hey, they are Muslim. They link with the other Muslim the group, and then they have hidden agenda to separate our country. So they create this narrative and the power elites and the politician, especially power-seeking politician, spread this narrative. And then on the other hand, they show that they are the only leaders who can prevent from this existential threat and who can maintain the country's national identity, country's sovereignty, and country's national security. So they built their image in this way. They are getting more power and more popular. On the other hand, Rohingya community became more and more securitized and framed as an illegal immigrant. And they see that these Rohingya community 
does not belong to Burma in any way. So the military leaders and Burmese and Rakhine political uh, elites also approach this issue through the who camp first. So who camp first in this area? So this is from the historical or from the anthropological perspective. This this question is meaningless, literally meaningless. So we we cannot answer who camp first in this. And then this is not the right approach to resolve this issue. This is totally human suffering by man-made disaster, man-made issue. So we can approach in citizenship issue by changing the citizenship law and building the capacity to the country's national to, to pursue their authentic right in their way. So in this way, they can overcome. And also identity issue, we can promote integration, we can promote cohesion, and we can promote the forming a national identity that can embrace all other community. In this way, we can overcome. So, but the, the problem is the Burmese authority, Burmese successive leaders approach in different way. Instead of resolving the problem, the issue is getting worse. And mm-hmm. so because of the long lasting discriminatory policy, the Rohingya community become de facto statelessness. For example, they are living inside the Burmese territory, but they are not recognized as a Burmese national. So literally they are stateless, but living in the Burma. And you know, any children born in Burma is illegal. This is one of the situation that stateless person face. So they are detained in the this ghetto like, you know, detention camp or, you know, this the northern Rakhine state, they are detained in this area. They cannot go other villages or other town or they cannot go without permission. They cannot join the university or higher education. If someone wants marry, they have to apply the registration and they have to apply for permission. Without permission, they cannot even marry each other. Those permission, they have to wait for years. And some people want to get permission quickly. They have to give bride. Not only the human population, but also the dog, cattle, cows, goats, everything, even the chicken, any cow, they have to report to the local authority. These local Mm. authorities are not Rohingya, but the full million people are Rohingya, but the authority just individual are not Rohingya. They are assigned from the government. So this area is literally a ghetto-like situation, camp, detention camp. Even though they, they fled now, the many Rohingya fled the country and live in the refugee camp in Bangladesh, but their situation in back home is not too different from them. Since 2012, the anti-Rohingya violence or communal violence between the Rohingya and Rakhine community outbreak. And then the hundreds of thousands of Rohingya since that time lost their home and villages and they were moved to the IDB camp in Rakhine state. Since that time, now almost 10 years, they have been living in that very small and crowded IDB camp. And 
they have no future. Many many children were born and now 10 years old. Refugee, IDB, stateless, they have nothing. They have no future. So this desperate condition and resolve yet. And then since 2015, the Burmese government also changed the electoral law, excluded Rohingya from giving vote and excluded Rohingya from presenting their community. This is the last situation that Rohingya were totally excluded from not only the social sphere, but also the political sphere. They cannot vote, they cannot represent. So nothing to resolve their issue and there is no channel to present their suffering. Political sphere is totally blocked. That makes the violent sphere is open. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is no channel to resolve their suffering, their issue. So this community, they were pushed to be extreme. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, there is no option to resolve or to overcome the situation. They are outdated. These people are blocked from the, the wall. Many people in this area, they don't know what happened outside the wall. So those people, those desperate people choose desperate way to resolve the situation. Maybe this is one of the causes that leads to another violence in 2016, 2017, and then revenge, extrajudicial and exceptional revenge by the Burmese military, driven out more than 700,000 Rohingya from the country. This is more than 60% of the Rohingya population were now driven out. And until now, they have no future, or literally, they became refugee, they live in the refugee camp, desperate, and no future. There is nothing guaranteed to return back with dignity and safety in the near future. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is unlikely yet. That's why the situation happened in this way. And many analysts thought that the 2017, 2016, 17 Rohingya problem is also created by the military. But I do not have any specific evidence to support this argument. But in the history, the Rohingya were driven out from the country by the military clearance operation, brutal clearance operation. This is not the first time. In 1977-78, the military conducted brutal, exceptional operation that driven out, at that time, 200,000 Rohingya from Burma. And in mm-hmm. and 1991 to 1994, again, hundreds of thousands of Rohingya fled Burma because of the same military operation. And 2012, 2013, again, internally displaced. And then 2016, 17, the current problem happened. Uh, But this time, the United States Department uh, decided that this is the genocide against a specific community, specific ethnicity. This is what uh, I see the situation regarding the 2017 and genocide issue. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much, they are for walking us through that long and 
very difficult history and helping us see that this has been something that's been systematic and ongoing for a really long time. What you described is a level of dehumanization that I think is almost impossible for most of us to comprehend. Um, really, yeah. really painful situations to imagine people being born without the rights that uh, most people would be familiar with as basic uh, human rights and basic yeah. citizenship is really, really hard to even fully wrap our minds around. I think one thing that is still confusing or surprising to a lot of people is the fact that this genocide in 2017 occurred at the time when the National League for Democracy was actually in power. And I think lots of people based in the US or in Europe felt that that was the time when Myanmar was on a path to democratizing. And so it was quite confusing, I think, for lots of people outside of Myanmar trying to understand how it was that this horrible atrocity could have happened at that moment. And in your chapter, the securitization mm -hmm. of Rohingya in Myanmar, you make a very compelling argument about why that did occur and why we didn't see the positive changes in Myanmar government's treatment of Rohingya um, during the time that Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, was in power. Could you tell us a little bit about your argument in that chapter? Sure. This is very interesting that I explain in my chapter how the securitization of the Rohingya process changed over time. At first, let's say in 1980, at that time, General Nguyen, who is the dictator of the first military dictator who ruled the country for more than 20 years and who started initiative the current Burma citizenship law that's totally effectively excluded the Rohingya and other small minorities from the national catalog. At that time, when they developed the citizenship law, they created the narrative that Indian and China are not trustworthy, and so these people should not be recognized as a full-fledged citizenship of Burma the power elite and authority started the securitizing, securitizing narrative, creating the specific group or community, portraying the specific group or community as an existential threat to the reference objects. So in, in this case, the reference objects is four main reference objects uh, that the people are highly valued. Like for example, the Buddhist identity, Majority people highly value. They cannot compromise with their Buddhism identity. Very lovely. And also ethnic identity like Bama or Rakhine or the recognized ethnic identity. The third is sovereignty or the country's territory. They see that from the Kachin state, Putao, to the bottom, the way, uh, this is the Tanendai. So they see that from the top to the bottom, they own this land. Most of the Burmese people have the same attitude. They own this land. They highly value in this way. And also like the economic security. They see that the Rohingya are threatened to these four main reference objects. Secessionist agenda. So that threaten to the territorial security. They always doing business with their own people. They never buy or sell with other people. 
because of this narrative, many people started fear that, okay, these people, these Rohingya people uh, threaten to our economic security. And also these people, these Rohingya speak only their language and, you know, maintain only their culture. They do not uh, adapt other people's culture, talk other people's language. So this narrative also threaten, okay, these people, Rohingya people, increase population very quickly. And in the future, near future, these Rohingya people will outnumber, ethnic people will be diminished. And then the country will be Muslim country. They fear this way. So this is not the baseless fear. They are systematically brainwashed or they are systematically propagandized through mass media and journal and book everything and small booklet to the big book everything even i grown up in Burma by reading this kind of narrative this kind of book so in this sphere at the first politicians started this narrative this securitizing process then after two decades three decades later now majority people internalize this narrative and then Populist politicians try to behave in line with the majority people's expectation so that even though the NLD or Aung San Suu Kyi came in power, instead of correcting the wrong narrative or instead of educating the public by democratic norm, they fail to do this way and they try to themselves in line with the public expectation. Okay, we will protect our nation. We will protect our religion. You know, they fail to educate the public. And then they also try to support or reinforce orally entrenched narrative among the civilian. This is why even though Aung San Suu Kyi or NLD came in power, the problem remain unchanged and even worse because, you know, hey, our leaders is stand with us and we stand with Aung San Suu Kyi. We stand with military. And then that we can see in 2017 and why the military operation against the Rohingya, many people stand with the military and support the military operation because they sincerely believe that they were besieged by the international, you know, Muslim country, and they were threatened by this uh, Rohingya community so that they demand a strong leader who can protect and who can at least uh, mitigate their concern. Then the, the populist politician fill this gap. That's why I label this situation as a bottom-up securitization. Previously, this is a top-down securitization, but over time, because of the internalized and institutionalized, and then that shaped the political elite again. So, bottom-up securitization that makes the com- that makes the Rohingya issue intractable. That mm-hmm. I explain in my chapter in this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. They are. Yeah, your chapter was so illuminating for me, um, understanding more about that history and especially this dynamic of 
interplay between both top-down and bottom-up securitization was um, quite informative and helped clarify a lot of things that I had been wondering about. Also, as you were speaking, it reminded me that around the same time, there were parallels happening between Trump's rhetoric and Aung San Suu Kyi's rhetoric. I'm sure you remember um, when white nationalists marched um, in Charlottesville and committed acts Mm. of violence. Trump spoke about there being good people and like violence yeah. on both both sides, which was very similar to Aung San Suu Kyi's rhetoric about there being violence on both sides narrative was something that both of them were saying at almost the same time, which was quite an interesting parallel. And I think there are some of the similar dynamics of um, circular uh, bottom up and top down securitization in in both instances, which is maybe something that um, I think your theory also has application Beyond Myanmar, of course, it's incredibly important to think about Myanmar on its own terms. Um, that's that's probably Thank the you. first yeah. importance. But I think that your theory also could um, definitely travel and help us understand other context. Can I add one thing? Mm-hmm. You know, I also explained interval process between the top down and bottom up. You know, there are also horizontal securitization happen. Like for example. This is like a peer pressure. So when I was in Burma at that time, I was also in the middle of the problem. And I was at the time, the activists and the opposed, strongly opposed against this situation. So uh, for example, I didn't dare to express my real uh, feeling or opinion because I care about my surrounding my peers or my supervisor, boss, whatever, you know, this is like the horizontal securitization. This is like peer pressure. It doesn't come from the top down or bottom up. Everyday ordinary people do not speak out about this community or otherwise I will be labeled as pro-Bengali or pro-Muslim or otherwise like, you know, traitors, national traitors. I have also a lot of evidence that happened. So, for example, for example, in Rakhine State in 2012, a, a photo spread on social media showing a Rakhine man experiencing a humiliating punishment from his own community because uh, by wearing a placard saying, I'm a traitor and slave of Galas. So, a caption beneath the photo read the, the man who buy or sell grocery to Kala. They mm. sell food to Kala so that this person were humiliated punishment uh, walk around the town. And this is not the only incident. I have even three records. Maybe there are more, much more incident happen in this area because, you know, the, this is a kind of evidence of the horizontal securitization and then bottom-up securitization. And this make the situation, you know, all or nothing environment. So if Mm. we want to resolve, we cannot address just one point or just one perspective. There is no straight through or linear approach in this case, because this is like we see in multi-facets issue. We need a holistic approach to see and to overcome the situation. So this is what I argue in my chapter. 
explaining this way. Yeah. Thank you, Zayar. Yes, I think the way you speak about horizontal securitization resonates with a lot of uh, mechanisms of control that have been happening in Myanmar for a long time. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Zayar. Thank you for sharing these really important insights with us. My name is Therese Gagnon, and I have been speaking with Cha Zayar Wen. This conversation with Cha Zayar Wen discussing the roots of securitization of Rohingya in Myanmar and the U.S. government's determination of genocide will be continued in a future episode of the Nordic Asia podcast. And thank you to our listener for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.